open the precious Bible that you have in your hands in one form or another to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters and 1,282 verses, and I don't want you to be overwhelmed or confused by such a large book. The first five chapters create a section by themselves of warnings to Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 1, you can tell, is a warning, and chapter 2 is a warning, and chapter 3 is a warning. And chapter 4 has one verse of warning and five verses of great comfort. And chapter 5 is a warning. I hope that you'll remember these chapters as we proceed through them so that the book will become familiar to you, that you'll remember where we've been, and that you'll understand where we are in light of where we've been by looking at these chapters. Chapter 2 is filled with terror. Chapter 1, God called them Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 3 was about taking away men and putting women and children over them and then judging those haughty women severely. And it brings us to chapter 4. And the theme of these six short verses is simple. Though God would judge Judah severely, which is mentioned in verse 1, glory days were coming by his replanting of Israel. Because he would replant them in the land that he had chose for them after they were recovered out of Babylon. If you look at the chapter very quickly... Verse 1, and some of you may have done this last evening, is a transitional verse because verse 1 ties chapter 4 into chapter 3 very obviously because chapter 3 ends with men being killed in battle, verse 25, leaving a lot of extra women as widows who are in verse 4 because there are no men left. Verse 2 is that Judah the branch, and I'll explain that in a moment, would flourish where God, when God replanted it back in Judea. In verses 3 and 4, God would sanctify His elect remnant and make them holy. And verses 5 and 6 have wonderful promises of God defending His people and protecting them. And so we have four divisions and only six verses. The first verse should remind you of where we were last Sunday in chapter 3. In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. That's because the men have been killed. And so the women, to avoid the reproach of being single, and it's a reproach to be single in God's view of things and in the Bible, because it was the desire of women to be married and to bear children and for the spiritual ones they might be the ones to bear the child, but they'd have to be a virgin to do that. And so marriage was important, but these women did not have necessarily the best intentions at all, but cared more about the esteem of men than they did begging God in repentance for the state of their nation. They are more worried about their reproach than God's reproach. I hope that we'll worry more about reproach on God than reproach on us. Right. I hope that we'll worry more about God being disappointed by us than us being disappointed about something in our lives. There's something to disappoint us every day, right. but let's not disappoint Him. And let's always make sure we keep our priorities right. It's easy to see the connection. 
This chapter of four ends what is a section of Isaiah, chapters two through four. Chapter one is kind of by itself because we can tell by the first verse and the first verse of chapter two that states all over again an introduction to Isaiah the prophet and what his ministry was about. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 are connected together by transitional verses between them. Chapter 5 is kind of different. It's kind of separate. It's, it's certainly unlike chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord. It's very different from that. There are connections to 2 through 4, but it starts out with the song. And so it kind of separates it. The reason I want to do this to you is I want to reduce it in pieces where I can without violating its context to help you grasp the whole book. And right now, if you can see two through four as a section with one kind of being introductory, five kind of being a song, then you'll see that it begins and it ends with wonderful promises and severe judgment promised in between. Look at chapter 2. It shall come to, verse 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. That is the New Testament church and Gentiles being converted and added to it. And so is verse 3 and so is verse 4. And Isaiah the prophet begged the Jews to have an interest in this great blessing that was coming by verse 5. And so this section, severe in judgment, what's one word to characterize chapter 2? Terror. Terror. They're going to be hiding themselves in the craggy rocks. They're going to be hiding themselves in caves. They're going to be trying to hide themselves or they're being mocked about hiding themselves in the dust of the earth. They're going to be throwing their idols to the bats and to the moles. It's terror. Chapter 3 is judgment of men and women and society being turned up down. Chapter 4 takes up where chapter 2 began. Look at verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Because in between is a whole lot of judgment, but some of them would escape. And those that escape, God is going to sanctify and God is going to defend. We have escaped the judgment of God on this, on this earth by blindness and darkness of the depravity of humankind. And God has saved us, sanctified us, defends us, and has made us in the New Testament glorious and beautiful, excellent and comely just like these promises state. And so we ought to rejoice and see that as I have pointed out to you, while you're reading Isaiah and you have a section of judgment, there will be a verse, two verses, or a few verses of promised blessings. And the promised blessings will be great and very kind. What a prophetic design by the prophet here and by God's providence in collecting these few thoughts in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah presented to the nation. He had a long ministry, but this is what we get. And if we trust the, the arrangement of the chapters, 
the 52-year reign of Uzziah kind of ends in chapter 6, because in chapter 6 it begins with the words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. But this is what God gave us to have. My brethren, I have, I have started today's worship with Isaiah 1, 25 through 27, to be compared to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, to be compared to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, so that you will see that Isaiah the prophet, being given a vision of Judah's future, saw Christ, saw the New Testament, saw Mount Zion, which is above, saw the heavenly Jerusalem, saw Gentiles being converted, saw a new order of priests and judges that would be like the early days of the nation when it was the best, when God walked with them, when David sought to exalt the Lord and worship Him with the greatest of zeal. I want you to see that wherever we go in this book. Where in the book of Isaiah we are limited to something specific by a time frame or by the name of a king, like a Cyrus, we will understand we're limited. But when we see Judah and Jerusalem with descriptions different than anything we can read about in the Old Testament, we know that he's writing about us in the New Testament so that he has a long vision as he looks forward. Remember that in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told the prophets that wrote in the Old Testament didn't really know what or what manner of time they were writing about. Now, they knew that they had enemies named Assyria and Babylon, but there were things they didn't know about, and the Apostle Peter summarized it this way, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so if we miss the sufferings of Christ, Messiah of Israel, and the glory that follows, then we have missed the interpretation of Isaiah. Isaiah didn't see it clearly, but Peter did, because Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking back by inspiration, he wrote it down and told us those things. And so he was able to talk about a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. It's impossible under the Old Testament Israel. That has to be a new order of things. And so there's a new world order. The gospel era of kingdom of Jesus Christ, which I preached too long to you from John chapter 12 some time ago. I hope that you will learn the metaphorical language of a prophet, that you will learn what similitudes are. Similitudes are a long word for similes, where you use as or like to compare things to give a word picture. I gave you a chapter. It's my favorite chapter. Second favorite chapter is Isaiah th in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 34 for the most similitudes by the prophet with an obvious event being described. Isaiah 13 is very obviously the overthrow of Babylon, the city, by the Medes and the Persians, 
because it is exactly stated that way at the end of the chapter. But I would like you to read that as families and look at all the universal language, the whole earth, the whole heavens, all men, the world. All it's talking about is one city being overthrown by the Medes. That's all it's talking about. And the cataclysmic language, the constellations no more giving their light, the sun and the moon failing, so that you will get used to reading this kind of language and understand that the prophet is using it to describe a rather modest event, but under cataclysmic, earth-shaking, and it'll talk about that too, terms. It'll be useful for you. Then, when somebody takes you to task in Matthew chapter 24 and says, "How the sun's not shining. The earth's being chased out of its place. How can... How did that happen in 70 AD? You can just turn them to Isaiah 13 and say, how did this happen in 457 BC? Right. When they take you to Acts chapter 2 and want to tell you about the blood, the moon turning to blood and, and fire and vapor of smoke and, and things like that, then you can point out to them from Isaiah 13 that some of that language was used for the overthrow of Babylon. And so then when Peter said, this is that, you are not confused. Because that is a prophet that did not know what he was talking about when he wrote about the Holy Spirit totally turning religious religion upside down in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. May the Lord bless you to, to, to learn that. Prophecy and progressive revelation should emphasize the Lord Jesus Christ and spiritual truth in many, many places. You know that Isaiah is messianic in many places because he mentions the, the Lord Jesus Christ, right. sometimes by name, like in Isaiah chapter 7 where he's Emmanuel, or in Isaiah chapter 9 where he is the mighty God. So he's very messianic, and we want to see that or we're going to miss things, and so we come to chapter 4. And I read to you the first section, verse 1. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is a transitional verse that connects us to chapter 3. I am not like commentaries. And I am not like others that would say this was an error in the chapter division because obviously verse 1 belongs with chapter 3. I would say obviously verse 1 is transitional to, com to connect chapter 3 and chapter 4. But I trust the providence of God that gave us verse 1 of chapter 4 about a woman, about women not having very many men because of chapter 3 and verse 25, thy men shall fall by the sword. The reason for the sex ratio in Israel or Judah being reduced to seven women to one man, which is contrary to God's order of the birth sex ratio, is because of war. And the war was told about in chapter 3. In that day... 
must refer to the prophesied event and time of judgment that chapters 2 and 3 have been telling us about. Because in chapter 2, in that day, is there three times. In chapter 3, in that day, is there twice. In chapter 4, we've got in that day twice. And they're not the same day. Because they're not 24-hour periods. They're periods of time. Have you ever said or ever heard anyone say, the day is coming when you're going to know such and such. For instance, you've got this 15-year-old living at home that if you were to only give him cookies and Coke, it would turn to muscle and bone. And in your resentment of the lad, you say to him, the day is coming when you will be just like me. The words that I'm very familiar with by repetition are, you're coming to daddy. In what day? Did I mean a 24-hour period of time? Did I even mean two years? Or did I mean 40 years from the age of 30 to 70? The day is coming. I just want you to understand the Bible. Don't, don't get hung up on this. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, when it says, on the first day, is that a period of time? No, it isn't. How do we know it isn't? Because it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the first day. So anyway, when we have it here in verse 1. Let's pass over it uh, without making any more to do about it. Birth rates. Do you know what the birth sex rate is? 106 males are born to every 100 females. That is God's order for our race. Do you know why God has that order for our race? Because boys play dangerously. Do not mock me. Boys play dangerously. Teenage boys drive dangerously. And they're called off to war and die dangerously right. in war. And so God's made up that difference. And so the birth sex rate is 106 to 100, but the population rate right now in the world is 102 to 100 because the guys are always working to weed themselves out by the ways that I just mentioned. But in this particular case, we have a reversal and we've got 700 to 100 or 7 to 1. We've got seven females to every male and so the females are desperate for a male. I thank God for everything that we're able to see in the world and bring back to Him. Isn't that wonderful, 106 to 100? Who picked that? Evolution picked it over time? But if it, evolution had picked it slowly, there wouldn't have been any men left. The Lord picked it. And it's a kindness. So that even in a time of war... When men are killed, and women, usually, when militaries are set up properly, are home, safe and secure where they should be, then you end up with a, relation, with a ratio of one to one, even after a war. It's, it's God's providence and wisdom, and we thank Him for it. Jeremiah is going to prophesy in Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 8, that the widows of Judah were multiplied like the sand which is by the seashore. 
That's why you have this 7 to 1, which is a tremendous change from 106 to 100 to have 7 to 1 or 700 to 100. That's a tremendous change because of war and because God taking away their men. These seven women would take hold of one man and they would write their own prenuptial. And their prenuptial was, we don't need Exodus 21 and we will pass over Exodus 21 for the sake of being married. Let me remind you in Exodus 21 where God, in his kindness to the hard hearts of men, regulated polygamy. Exodus 21 and verse 10. If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. And if he do not these three things unto her, then shall she go out free without money. If we read the whole Bible, we will see God's wisdom everywhere. God, for the hardness of men's hearts, allowed polygamy. Polygamy was never his design. He never approved of it with a full heart, but a heart of mercy toward men that were rebellious, stubborn, and invented many inventions for what he had designed. And so these women, look what it says, we will eat our own bread. We will forfeit Exodus 21 and verse 10. We will wear our own apparel. We will provide what we eat every day and we will provide our own clothes. Will you just marry us so we can have a new last name and take away our reproach that we're single? While I'm on polygamy here, and this is not really polygamy, but it's seven women being willing to submit to polygamy when most women won't cheerfully submit to it, except in extreme cases, oh, like Sarah and like Rachel and like Leah. There are some examples in the Bible, but most women don't like to share their husband. But very quickly, God didn't intend it. God made Eve for Adam, not Eve and Betty. He, he made Eve for Adam. And you know, there's verses in the Bible. My favorite verse, and you should know it by now, is Malachi 2.15, where God said, I had the leftovers of the spirit of women. I had this little pile left on my table of the spirit of women. And I could have made more women for Adam, but I didn't. So polygamy is not my plan. That's Malachi 2.15. God did not intend polygamy, but Laban, Lamech in Genesis chapter 4 invented polygamy. So it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, God made man upright, but he hath sought out many inventions about marriage and sex. God didn't intend polygamy, but he protected wives. I just read one of the passages to you. God did not intend polygamy, but he did not count it adultery. So when you're reading the Bible and you see God's great men getting away with polygamy, they're not getting away with adultery because they had rules about taking care of those wives and they did marry them. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. You'll, you will read some passages that unless you understand that, you'll be very confused. This was one of David's sins of multiplying wives to himself because the word of God had said for kings in Deuteronomy 17, 
not to multiply wives to themselves. If a man thinks polygamy would be quite the setup and quite a fantasy, he has not properly loved one woman yet, and that's why he continues to live in ignorance. He hasn't properly loved one wife, let alone multiple wives. And that is just so easy, but it's not for this sermon for me to explain the logic of it to you if you haven't figured it out yet. If you haven't figured it out yet, you're not capable of learning it. Polygamy should never be a fantasy of a man. The one woman he has is more than he can handle if he was to ever love her properly. But women in this situation were different due to necessity and male scarcity. There weren't, there weren't men around, as chapter 3 and verse 25 tells us, God had taken them. You know, you don't have to be this desperate. These women were the haughty women. They cared more about their impression. They cared more about their reputation. That's what they wanted. It doesn't say because they wanted to build the next army by their sons. It says they wanted their reproach taken away. That's what it says in verse 1. So we understand them a little bit better by reading the whole verse. A woman doesn't have to marry. God's ordinary plan is for a woman to marry. God's ordinary plan is for a man to marry. God's ordinary plan is for a man not to be alone, to have a wife. And for a woman to have rest is to have a husband. But there are women like Anna in the Bible, who was a very young widow when her husband died, and she spent the next four decades of her life serving the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. And she's heralded by the Holy Spirit by making it to the pages of Holy Scripture as a great woman. That is Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. There's no further difficulties in the verse. In that day, that is when God takes away the men and ruins and overthrows Jerusalem and Judah, seven women shall take hold of one man. They'll want him to be their husband. They won't care about clothes or food. They will write a prenuptial agreement that says we don't need Exodus 21 verses 10 and 11. We just want our reproach taken away by having a husband. So we come to verse 2. In that day... There's the second occurrence in this chapter. Shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now, that day in verse 1 is judgment time because the women don't have husbands and the men have been taken away. But verse 2 in this chapter, that day, is not the same time as that day of verse 1. It can't be because it's blessed time after being recovered from captivity because it says, they that are escaped of Israel. So it's the escapees that are being talked about in verse 2. And what a wonderful verse Isaiah 4.2 is. Now Isaiah 4 may, may never have grabbed your attention in the past, but I want it to grab your attention right now. Because until the second service, Isaiah 4 is my favorite chapter in Isaiah. And if you'd have asked me last Sunday, 
it's not my favorite either because it's chapter 3 in the second service. This is a choice. You look at that verse, Isaiah 4, 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord, and I want you to notice four words, beautiful, glorious, excellent, and comely. We have a parallelism in this verse comparing the branch of the Lord to be beautiful and glorious. And the parallel clause is, the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely. And both of that parallelism, those two clauses with four descriptions are for those escaped of Israel. Those that are going to make it through the judgment of God and be replanted. Because there's going to be a planting because there's a branch mentioned. In verse 2, in that day shall the branch of the Lord. Now since God in his providence has arranged for the second service today to be a vineyard, it shouldn't be as hard for you to figure out the branch. And if any of you took the time to read Psalm 80 last night, it is perfect. Psalm 80 is about a vine being brought out of Egypt and planted. You, bring, you don't bring the whole vineyard, you bring a branch, and you plant it, and it grew. And it's a, it's a great psalm in comparison to this thought here. What is the branch of the Lord? You should be asking me. You should, your hand should be wanting to fly skyward to ask me, what is the branch of the Lord? And in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. Is there a branch of the Lord that you know to be beautiful and glorious? It's usually with a capital B. Sometimes it's all caps, capital B-R-A-N-C-H, the Lord Jesus Christ. How far will we have to go to run into that? Look at chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11. And for those of you with good memories and for those of you without, remember, chapters 6 through 12 are called the book of Emmanuel because it's about the Lord Jesus Christ more than chapters 1 through 5. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and so forth, verse 3, And shall make him of quick understanding. Do you know who this is? Verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. Paul picked it up. Paul quoted these in Romans chapter 15. But right now we need to ask and answer the question, what is the branch in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2? And I could turn you to verses like this and like this and more verses like this. But there is no, there's reasons why there is another branch. And it's not the Lord Jesus Christ here. There is another glorious, beautiful, excellent and comely branch, and that is his recovered church when he's purposing to bless it. Let me show it to you. I'm saving time right now, but it, you know, in the out, listen, someone, someone asked me this morning in pure innocence and integrity, since it'll only take you 20 minutes to cover Isaiah 4, why don't you see if you can squeeze in a third of Isaiah 5 at the same time so that we don't have to fly in the second service. In the purity of their minds and in their integrity, I understand the math. 
But if I were to plumb the depths, I think is the terminology of the branch. There are some wonderful verses about Jesus being the branch because he's, he's the stem, he's the root, he's the offspring of David. And the Bible uses that all the way until chapter what of the Bible? Where Jesus is still the root and offspring of David. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. He's still being talked about that way. But I've got something else for you. It could be the church or nation of God's elect restored to Jerusalem after Babylon. Look at Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. This is what expository study does for us. Until your pastor is preaching expositorily, he doesn't have the time to go into word depth on verses like he does when he's doing that. When he's preaching topically, then we, we, we tend toward verses that we've assumed we understand what they are rather than really dissecting them in their context. Let me show you this. Uh, it, it should be kind of visible in chapter 4. If you just read about, it's not talking about an individual man like it did in Isaiah 11. It's talking about a group of people that escaped and the Lord's replanting them. So it should look like the nation and it should look like the church to you without going anywhere else. But let me go a few other places just to comfort you. Isaiah chapter 27 and it would be the all six verses, but I'm just going to read. Uh, well, look at verse two. It, it kind of gives it away. In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. Now, that's not the Lord. That's his church. But verse six, he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That's a perfect cross-reference for Isaiah chapter four and verse two. Isaiah 27 and verse 6, He shall cause them that come of Jacob. He shall take those that escape. They'll take root and they'll blossom and bud and they'll fill the face of the world with fruit. The fruit of the earth will be excellent and comely. Which, which do you prefer? I like them both. They're both saying the same thing. And we could look at all six verses here because it's 27, 1 through 6. But come over to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60. Here's the pleasure of expository study. Every verse in the Bible that used root, offspring, shoot, stem, branch for David, I studied. Oh, and by the time you're done doing that after a couple of hours, you're shouting for the Lord in your office. Amen. But then you better be careful because your context is pushing you in a different direction so you look for some other cross-references for branch, and lo and behold, the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, what do you think of my better idea? Then you're shouting happy because there's a God. I'm telling you, it's, it's that literal. Right. It is absolutely that literal. Mm -hmm. The words are, you are magnificent. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Isaiah 60. I could read a number of, I could start at verse 18, but I'm going to read verse 21. Thy people 
also shall be all righteous. Are we going to run into that in Isaiah 4? That they're going to be made holy, they're going to be made righteous? Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So it's the glory and the beauty and excellent and comely of the plant that the Lord's going to plant. It's His church. It's the church. So, and there's more. How about 61 and verse 3? To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So, thank you, Lord. So, Isaiah chapter 4 is the glory of the church. Judah, the branch, would flourish. It's not Jesus, the branch here. It's Judah, the branch here. Or Israel, them that are escaped of Israel. If you take, if you take Israel and Judah to particularly thinking that Isaiah only intends the ten tribes, when he uses the word Israel, you're going to get into trouble. Sometimes he means only the ten tribes. At other times he means the people of God, the church of God of the Old Testament, and he's using it with greater latitude. I hope I've said that last Sunday, and I just said it again because you'll get into trouble. And I, I, know, what, I know what's in verse 2. It has the word Israel. And I know what's in verse 3. It has Zion, and Zion isn't in the ten tribes, and neither is Jerusalem. But we're still, in, we're still in verse 2. God would purify his people in Babylon and bring back a sky and branch to plant a nation. And he did. He purified them. And we're going to read about that purification process in verse 4 when it calls it the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And he will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion. That filth that we read about last Sunday in chapter 3, those 11 verses, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 26, the filth of the daughters of Zion, he's going to get rid of that in Babylon. And he explains how. He rips away all the men, rips away all their clothes, and exposes them to the sexual violence of the Chaldeans. That's a way to humble a woman and get her over her haughtiness. And I do not speak lightly about that. That is God's severe judgment on them. But that's in verse 4, right in front of us. And while we're studying a verse, we can't forget what's about to come because it helps us understand the second verse. And he'll, and he'll have purged the blood of Jerusalem. How did God purge the blood of Jerusalem? And what was the blood of Jerusalem? The blood of Jerusalem was back there in chapter 1. The rulers of Jerusalem were murderers. And so how would he purge it? The way you always purge murder. Kill the murderer. You've never seen a repeat murderer that's been put to death. That's how you get rid of them. So you purge them. And you punish them. And the nation was greatly reduced in numbers by God's judgment. But that's in verse 4, and you've just forced me to go ahead. It was appropriate, and it was helpful. I hope that it was helpful. Because it says in verse 2, they'll be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. When God replanted His nation, He had purged those women. And He had purged the men. But remember, we're always looking farther ahead than just Zerubbabel. Because did Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra, and I've already mentioned this, have some trouble 
with the uh, marriages of the Jews? Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. Did those Jews come back from Babylon and marry pagan wives? Did Nehemiah grab them and say, what in the world are you doing? This is what caused Solomon to sin? Even Solomon sinned by outlandish women. What are you doing this for? So I've, I've taught you, and I cannot do this every verse. When the prophet looks and sees a glorious, beautiful, excellent, comely church, he is seeing all the way down into history to a sanctified church of the Lord Jesus Christ under his blood. It's not just Zerubbabel. Because if we go to Zerubbabel, he had problems. They're called trouble. And if we go to Ezra and Nehemiah, they had problems with these very issues. Just keep that in mind. I won't be able to mention it every time, but every time in study, it's there. And I've tried to remind you with it this morning, even with the verses we use to get started. God would purify his people in Babylon and bring back a sky and branch to plant a nation, a glorious nation. And that nation would be God, would, would vindicate God, and it would, be a, it would glorify God by what he was going to do in it and through it. Let me, say, let me say it from a different angle, and I've already said this once this morning as well, but this is the second time. When the Lord looks ahead, when the Lord looked ahead, whether it's from 2 Chronicles 36 or whether it's from Jeremiah 25, he saw 70 years of captivity. That was the purging process. And then he saw 70 weeks of promise. 70 weeks to determine six wonderful things upon his church, bringing them to Messiah. So with me, will you please learn to look with Isaiah at the future and see this mountain peak coming up on the horizon? Here's the prophet looking way out into time, and he sees a mountain peak, and it's Babylon, because it's the 70 years captivity. But beyond that, he sees another mountain peak, and it is somewhat higher. It's in the highest hills we read in chapter 2. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ reaching all the way through the 70 weeks to get us to Messiah. And it gets us to Messiah when he's anointed. It gets us to Messiah when he's cut off in the midst of the week. It gets us to Messiah when he makes a new covenant for one week with the children of Israel and with us. Look at that second verse. In that day, when the Lord recovers his church, shall the branch of the Lord, that's his church, be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Because the next stage of his church after recovery from Babylon was glorious. It was so glorious, the Lord didn't even write anything between Malachi and Matthew, and there's about 400 years of world history in there. Because all that mattered was the 70 weeks just kept progressing until Messiah the Prince. There shall be 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince. And there's nothing really else worth writing about except Malachi chapters 3 and 4 telling you that that Prince is coming. Listen, I could spend 20 minutes on the branch. Fruit of the earth is, an, is a parallelism. You were going to see it over and over in the book of Isaiah. It's a prophetic tool. In that day, the branch of the Lord is to be compared to the fruit of the earth. 
Beautiful to be compared to excellent. Glorious to be compared to comely. Have you learned this in the book of Proverbs a little bit with the parallelism? Sometimes it's connected positively with a four and sometimes it's adversatively with a but. And this is a, is, this is a positive comparison between the two. God raised up his shepherd Cyrus to start it, Zerubbabel to continue it, and the apostles to be glorious in it. Oh, I wanted to share with you this morning, and, it, and, I, and I forgot it. When I shared with you Isaiah 1, 25 through 27, that we'll have judges like we had at the first, do you know what kind of judges the New Testament church had? They're foundation stones of the church. They were the apostles. Jesus Christ said the apostles would sit on 12 thrones. I need a J word. Judging, oh yes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Was there anything compared to the apostles and the New Testament church and their giving of the laws of New Testament Christianity between Isaiah and them? No, there wasn't. It's all pitiful in there in, in comparison to the apostles. I hope I sh showed that enough and I've just added another passage too. Let's, let's get to verses 3 and 4 or we'll spend both services on Isaiah 4, and it's pitiful six verses. Verse 3, And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, these are the escaped remnant, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Those that are recovered shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When will this happen? Well, thank you, Lord, for answering it. When will verse 3 happen? When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. He is going to chasten his church and get rid of all the filth of those daughters and he is going to burn up all the junk that they put their trust in that we're going to read about in chapter 5 in the second service when they built houses after houses and bought fields so they could build themselves a plantation and an estate where they'd be the only ones left in the earth. They wanted to corner the market on real property in Judea. Unbelievable, insatiable avarice and greed by the Jews that recovered. But God burned it up. He took away their homes. He took away their fields. He took away their assets. He took away the girls' clothes. He took away everything. And so that's what the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning is in verse 4. But we got to get verse 3. It shall come to pass that he that is left is going to be holy. And how will they be holy? By the chastening work of God in verse 4. When will verse 3 occur? After verse 4 occurs. When the Lord shall have washed away all their filth, then they'll be holy. There is a purifying process in chastening. Look at Hebrews 12, in case you have forgotten. We love to rightly divide the word of truth into five phases. But look at Hebrews 12 to remind us that there is a righteousness and holiness that is produced by chastening. And it's the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Are you thankful that sometimes in your life God has gotten rid of things that were a temptation to you? That's the spirit of burning. Are you thankful that there have been times in your life where he put you into some pain and the affliction was good and you appreciated the affliction? Well, that's how it works. Verse 11. 
Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Does chapter 2 of Isaiah look or sound joyous? No. Chapter 3? No. Verse 1 of chapter 4? No. It doesn't seem to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And these are God's elect that he brings back, his select ones, and he's always overlooking the reprobates among them and seeing his chosen few among them and counting them. The holy remnant would be counted for the seed. We're going to learn that in Isaiah chapter 6. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Don't be discouraged by the Lord bringing some grievous time into your life. Do you hear me, brother? For another brother. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And so in Isaiah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it's going to come to pass that after the judgment of Babylon, the Chaldeans, the big mountain that is in the view of the prophet throughout this book, we're going to read all about Cyrus because we've got to get rid of that mountain of Babylon. And we will get rid of that mountain of Babylon. Do you know what Isaiah 13 is about? It's only a few chapters away. Isaiah 13 is the burden of Babylon because we've got to get Babylon out of the way. We've got to get loose from Babylon. We've got to escape Babylon. And the Lord did it. That's why there's escapees in verse 2. And it shall come to pass that those escapees, that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy. And you know this extends. We're in Jerusalem. We're on Mount Zion. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Even if you're saying you're spiritualizing the Bible. <laughs> Amen, I'm spiritualizing the Bible. If we don't spiritualize the Bible, we're going to end up with nothing in Isaiah. Right. Nothing. What do you think? Chap Listen, this particular lesson began in chapter 2, and all nations shall flow unto it. When did all nations flow to Jerusalem? It was spiritual Jerusalem. Because Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. And who was he writing in Galatians? The churches of Galatia, which is central Turkey. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Do you want to go to Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 right now? Does it say anything about a census being taken or a membership directory there that's written in heaven? Yes, it does. Did they keep genealogical records in Israel? Yes, they did. But is there one more important than the other? It's the one written in heaven. By, by, viewing, by viewing two mountains and seeing Mount Zion way out there and being a prophet named Isaiah who did not really know what or what manner of time he was writing about, but we do because when we read Isaiah chapter 4, we get to put the spectacles of the New Testament on and look back with the wisdom of Paul and Peter and see its fulfillment and know its fulfillment and have James standing up in the council of Jerusalem. Brethren, brethren, this is what the apostles, this is what the prophets wrote about. God has rebuilt the tabernacle of David with the conversion of the Gentiles. And so this is the purging of the Jews at hand when they were recovered out of Babylon 
But as we look forward, we can also see that the truly holy Jerusalem, the most glorious Jerusalem, the beautiful Jerusalem, the excellent Jerusalem, the comely Jerusalem is the one we're part of. That other one, Jesus walked out of that city and leveled it to the ground in comparison to the one we have. The spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning is a capital S. If you, if you need a capital S, then you can think one. But don't change your Bible. Is that the Holy Spirit of God? Yes. Does a little S bother you? I just need you to say yes. Okay, it bothers you. Isaiah 11. Let's go back over there to Isaiah 11. This list would be long and would take us a long time. I thank God that he wrote the Bible just the way he did. Amen. Do you wish that in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Word of God was capitalized with a W? Thank you. You've learned. We like it just the way it is. Those translators were not going to interpret Scripture. They were going to make us interpret Scripture. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. This is verse 1. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. I wonder what spirit that is. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, I wonder what spirit that is. This is just one. There's many. So don't worry about that. It's the Holy Spirit using, using God's chastening to purify. And the spirit of burning, it's the Holy Spirit burning up what needs to be taken out of our lives. The dross that's distracting us, He's able to get rid of. Thank you, Lord. And He brought back a purified church. Verses 5 and 6. God will defend and protect His church. And the Lord. And the Lord, what's He going to do with this church? That He's purified. They're holy. They're written among the living in Jerusalem. He's got rid of their filth. He's got rid of their blood. The Holy Spirit has chastened and perfected this church that Isaiah is seeing. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Now, is there any record in the Bible or in the Maccabees or anywhere, that every house in Jerusalem and every assembly that the Old Testament church had had a pillar of cloud above it during the day and a pillar of fire above it at night? No, no, no. Not after the recovery of Babylon. So don't try to literalize these promises here. Listen, you're Isaiah. You have a Jewish audience. What kind of terminology do you use for God's presence, God's power, and God's protection being with you all the time. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. If you go to Psalm 74, David's bringing it up 550 years later. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 9, which is after this, Nehemiah's bringing it up 1,100 years later. The glorious presence of God with the Jews because they were alone in the world, out there in the wilderness, but God was with them. Is God with His church? If you're Isaiah and you're a Jew of the Old Testament and you're preaching to an audience that's Jews of the Old Testament, how do you describe it? 
You describe it this way, and I love the way it's described. There was no pillar of cloud and pillar of fire over every individual house and over the assemblies of the Old Testament church of Jerusalem, literally. But was he there? Oh, yes, he was there. Did he, did he preserve the building of that second temple so that it was completed so that his son could go into that second temple? Indeed. The Lord will create upon every dwelling place. That is individuals. That is families. Brothers, do you see that? <clears throat> Assemblies is next. He takes care of us as families. He took care of them as families. His elect families that were holy, that he had purged in the sanctifying process of Babylon. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion. Are we on Mount Zion today? Yes, we are. Hebrews chapter 12. I trust Paul more than all other men on this subject combined. Because he said he knew more than all other men. In Ephesians chapter 3. The Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion. Here we are. We're the inhabitants of Mount Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us Gentiles. And upon her assemblies. When we come into this place, we pray in the back room, we pray here that God will be with us, that Jesus Christ will be walking with His golden candlestick, that the presence of God will be here. Don't you think that you can't have that as well in your individual dwelling place? That God can be with you in your house, at your house, with like, like a pillar of cloud in the day, like a pillar of fire at night. Because that was the visible image. Oh, it was a similitude. It was a similitude that he's using again. It's a similitude. Right. Are you all getting it? Mm -hmm. The prophets use similitudes. Isaiah doesn't write. Now for the practical phase of salvation, I would like to tell you about the presence of God by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pneuma in the Greek. And... He doesn't do that. That is not in the Bible. Stuff like that. When we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can take this kind of information and then give us New Testament angles on it. Right. And that's why we're able right now to look at this and know that we're in Mount Zion and that the prophet looking forward, the real presence of God was with, was with Zerubbabel, was with Jozadek the high priest, was with Joshua, was with Nehemiah and Ezra, but so much more with us. A cloud and a smoke by day, shining a fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. While it's going to be a beautiful church restored, it's also going to be a defended church restored. And so it says, upon all the glory shall be a defense. It'll not just be pretty, because if it was just pretty, then the pagan nations were going to want to take it as they had always wanted to take it, if it was just blessed and prosperous, but not just blessed and prosperous, it would be defended because there would be a defense there from God. Remember, that's what the cloud of pillar, that's what the pillary cloud of smoke and the cloud of fire was for because it was to go between the camp, the church of Israel, and the camp of the Egyptians so that they could not cross over. And it led them wherever they wanted to go. Reading about that pillar of cloud Israel would stay a day 
two days, a week, a month, if that cloud didn't move. But when that cloud moved, they packed. They packed right then, and they followed that cloud. We have, we have God's leading. We have God's protection. We have His power. We have His presence. Because we are the, we are the greatest fulfillment of any statement about Mount Zion in the Bible. Right. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. Every dwelling place and every assembly will be protected. The word tabernacle equals tent, equals pavilion, equals shelter and safety from heat, enemies, storms, and rain. There are slighter problems in life, which we may call heat, but a tent provides shade. There are enemies in life, when we need a place to hide, a tent, look at the verse, a tent provides refuge. There are greater, sudden problems in life, which are storms, but a tent is a covert from the storm. There are greater, Gradual problems in life, like rain, which can wash away anything, given it enough time, but a tent is a covert. And there shall be a tent, there shall be a tabernacle, there shall be a pavilion, for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge to hide from enemies, and for a covert from the sudden impact of a storm, or the gradual destruction of rain upon her glory shall be a defense. God purified His church in Babylon, and the prophet looking forward saw a mountaintop coming up, and he could see Mount Zion, glorious, beautiful, excellent, and comely. It never reached it in his lifetime. It never reached it in Haggai and Zechariah's lifetime. When the Jews looked at that pitiful little staked-out temple, they wept. They wept because it was so pitiful. And the Lord said, Don't you weep. This house will have more glory than any other house. And not in 300 B.C. with the Maccabees. or one That'd be the 100s. Not in the 300s, not the 200s, not the 100s. But in A.D., when Jesus Christ visited that temple, the Lord himself only looked forward to his son being there and how beautiful, glorious it would be. And his presence would be with him forever. And his presence is with us. It's a little chapter. You can see verse 1 connects it to chapter 3. You can see the next five are wonderful descriptions of God's sanctifying, loving, chastening, and beautifying, and protecting of His church. And if you go back to where this lesson began in chapter 2, it includes all nations flowing to it, which did not happen until the New Testament kingdom and church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.